When we think of Australia, several things may come to mind. Uluru, kangaroos, the Great Barrier Reef, or perhaps even its abundance of dangerous bugs and wildlife. But beneath the sun, sand and surf is a prolific amount of cold cases that have left detectives grasping at straws. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be exploring three cases from Australia. Rihanna Burrow. Born February 7th, 1980, Rihanna Burrow was described by her teachers as a cooperative and friendly girl with an infectious smile. She was a high achieving student who was expected to go far in life, and she had a small, close knit group of friends. Tragically, however, all that changed in 1992. In October of that year, Rihanna, now 12 years old, was living with her mother and brother in a home on Wakefield Avenue in Morford Vale, a busy suburb of South Australia. On the day of October 7th, Rihanna initially planned to travel five kilometers away to a shopping center to have lunch with her mother, Paula, who was studying at the adjacent college. However, on this particular day, the public bus drivers went on strike leaving Rihanna with no way to travel to meet her mother. Although she couldn't carry out her regular plans, the 12-year-old arranged with her mother to walk to a nearby newsagent for a Christmas card for her pen pal. Although it was only October, the international postage to America would mean that the card would take some time to arrive at the other end. At around 10.30 a.m., Rihanna walked away from her home, She purchased the card at 11.19 a.m. at Rinella Shopping Center and was later seen at around 2.30 p.m. at Morfitt Vale High School, a route which she used as a shortcut between her home and the newsagent. After this, Rihanna's movements are unclear. At around 4.10 p.m., her mother Paula came home. She found the front door of the house locked and noticed that the TV was on. A vinyl record was strewn on the floor of the living room, as if her daughter had been playing it. The Christmas card, purchased for Rihanna's American pen pal, was lying on the table, still in its carrier bag. The young girl herself, however, was nowhere to be seen. Immediately concerned, Paula began to call around Rihanna's friends and family members to see if anyone had seen her, and she also started knocking on the doors of neighbors to find out if they knew where her daughter was. But each time, Paula drew a blank. By 6 p.m., she had phoned the police. Although the authorities did not take the case lightly, they had precious little to go on. Paula made several appeals to the public, asking for help in locating her daughter, while Rihanna's father, Leon, flew from his home in Queensland to help with the search. Rihanna's brother could not provide any clues to the investigation, given that he had not been home at all that day. It wasn't long before police began to theorize that Rihanna had been taken from her home. It was believed that the 12-year-old had made it back to her house, but was approached by someone who'd come to the door. None of her personal belongings were missing, suggesting that Rihanna had not intended on leaving again after returning from the newsagents, or perhaps that she'd left in a rush. 
As a result of the number of public appeals organized by law enforcement, by November 25th, authorities had received over 1,600 tips. In one day alone, they received as many as 140. The hopes of those invested in the case raised when one of the tips pointed to a sighting of a girl on Acre Avenue who resembled the missing 12-year-old, but it was sadly established the girl was not Rihanna and had nothing to do with the case. Rubbish dumps were searched, and exploration of the bushland around the area turned up no new leads. Several tips that were called into the police were determined to be hoaxes, and many more led to dead ends. One tip-off even led police to believe that Rihanna was being held hostage in an apartment block on Anzac Highway in Coralta Park. Police raided the building, but found no sign of her, leading to an overwhelming feeling of hopelessness for all those involved in the case. Another sighting was that of a white car with Victorian license plates, which was seen in the area and had been reported to law enforcement. However, it was never found, and this line of inquiry has since been abandoned. According to a 2012 article, Rihanna's family were contacted by authorities who had narrowed down their suspect pool. At the time, the police were investigating at least one person who knew the young girl but was not related to her. It's unknown exactly what became of this lead, but since Rihanna's abductor continues to go free, it seems unlikely that it panned out. One local paper named The Advertiser printed a story that detailed how a man found a set of keys on Highway Drive, just a few hundred meters from Rihanna's home. The keys matched the description of those the young girl was thought to have on her at the time of her disappearance. The unidentified man called police from a payphone across the road. However, he claimed that when he returned to the scene, the keys were gone. According to authorities, who were later asked about this detail, the man had gone to the scene over a month after Rihanna's disappearance because his conscience was bothering him. On the afternoon of October 7th, the man had apparently seen a girl matching Rihanna's description near a white car in the same location where he'd discovered her keys. While this seems like a promising lead, it appears that nothing more has come from it, and Rihanna's keys have never been recovered. Although there is little to go on, many online sleuths have offered up theories in regards to Rihanna's case. One Reddit user wondered why the 12-year-old had spent so long at the shops, and speculated that she may have met someone, or perhaps stopped for lunch, and unknowingly caught the attention of the perpetrator. Others have postulated that, since the door was locked and there were no signs of a struggle, Rihanna must have gone willingly, likely with someone that she knew. The final theory often discussed is about the potential link between Rihanna's case and the unidentified serial rapist, Mr. Cruel, who attacked multiple young girls in the 80s and 90s in Victoria. Mr. Cruel's known cases have similarities to that of Rihanna's, For one, the 12-year-old fits the age range of his victims, and he only attacks during the school holidays, and October 7th, 1992 was a holiday. Mr. Cruel was also known to be from the Victoria area, and the car linked with Rihanna's disappearance was the white car with Victoria plates. Many have wondered if Mr. Cruel left Victoria since local police were throwing so much time and effort into trying to apprehend him. A concrete connection between Rihanna and Mr. Cruel, however, has never been made. 
A month after Rihanna's disappearance, a reward of $100,000 was raised for anyone who could provide information leading to either a conviction in the case or the young girl's remains. This reward has since been upped to $1 million. Anyone with any information on the disappearance of Rihanna is encouraged to contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000. Sarah McDermid. Born in the Scottish Highlands on November 15th, 1966, Sarah McDermid was 20 years old when she joined her family, including her parents Peter and Sheila, in emigrating to Australia in 1987. Described as a young woman who loved music and clothes and who embraced her mixed heritage, Sarah was well-liked, had a solid group of friends, and a great relationship with her family. She was particularly close to her brother, Alistair. However, what was supposed to be a fresh start for the family turned into a tragic nightmare with Sarah's disappearance in 1990. On the morning of July 11th, 1990, at around 7.20 a.m., 23-year-old Sarah left her home on Sky Road, Frankston, to head to work as usual. She was dressed in a grey suit and had in her possession a bag containing sports clothing, a tennis racket, $60 in cash, and a Walkman. After a busy day, Sarah left her workplace at 5.10pm and joined her friends for a few games of tennis at what was then known as Flinders Park in Batman Avenue, East Melbourne. After the game, Sarah, along with her friends, headed to Richmond Station, where they found they'd just missed the Frankston Line train. Instead, the group got a train to Caulfield before changing to the Frankston service. The two friends who had been with her disembarked at Bond Beach, while Sarah continued to the Cananook Railway Station, where she'd left her car that morning. The last time the 23-year-old was seen was when she got off the train and headed for the poorly lit car park at approximately 10.20 p.m. When Sarah didn't come home by 1 a.m., her family grew concerned. They sent one of her brothers, Ian, to look for her at the station. Her car, a red 1978 Honda Civic, remained still locked, but Sarah was missing. Despite this alarm, the young woman was not called in as a missing person until the following morning, when her family found out that she had gotten on the train home and that she hadn't turned up to work that morning. They had hoped that possibly she had stayed at a friend's the night prior. Authorities were sent to investigate Sarah's car and were disturbed when they found bloodstains beside it. They immediately suspected that the 23-year-old had been assaulted due to the amount of blood they had uncovered. Forensics later confirmed that this blood belonged to Sarah. They also found drag marks which led into the bushes, as well as a lighter that was identified by the family as having belonged to Sarah. Soon, witnesses came forward. They had seen the young woman step off the train and head across the footbridge to the car park, where several people had heard a young woman scream, give me back my keys. Another variation of this quote has been reported as, give me my car keys and stop fooling around. A sea, air, and land search lasting 21 days took place, utilizing 250 police officers, but this attempt to gather clues proved fruitless. One detective sergeant stated his belief that the attack on Sarah had been opportunistic, and her father, Peter, agreed with this statement. Since she always wore expensive-looking clothes, it's been theorized that she was perhaps attacked for any money or valuables she may have had on her. After this, however, 
Sarah's case begins to grow cold. In May of 2006, an inquest returned the verdict that she'd met foul play, but the exact circumstances are unknown. Five years later in 2011, convicted serial killer Paula Denyer, who killed three young women in 1993 and had previously gone by the name of Paul before identifying as a transgender woman, was interviewed by police. However, she denied any involvement with Sarah's disappearance. It's been noted that although Denya's second victim lived near to the station where Sarah went missing, her MO does not match. Denya confessed to her crimes and did not hide the body of her victims. Then, in May of 2014, News Corp Australia claimed that police investigators were considering convicted serial killer Bandali Debs as a possible suspect. In 1997, Debs took the life of a teenager named Kirsty Harty, and in 1998, he executed two police officers. According to the media company Fairfax Media, a senior police source noted that it was common practice for homicide investigators to examine links between unsolved cases and known offenders. Debs also denies any involvement in Sarah's case. In September of 2004, the 23-year-old's case was featured on the Australian psychic TV show called Sensing Murder. In the program, several psychics claimed that Sarah was dead and her body had been thrown into a now-closed rubbish dump on Mornington Peninsula. This program led to a former Frankston resident becoming inspired and he scoured the area on his bike, finding what he thought to be two shallow graves. When he contacted the police about this find, he was asked to dig it up, and the man refused, worried that he would incriminate himself if he did so. The two potential graves have not been looked into since, and authorities are, naturally, dismissive of theories that are offered up without evidence by so-called psychic sources. The main police theory, and perhaps the most compelling one, involved a sex worker named Jodie Jones. Prior to Sarah's disappearance, Jones had been sentenced to 12 years after being convicted of manslaughter when she'd jumped on a man's chest while wearing stilettos. Despite this and a list of prior crimes, she was let out early. Police theorized that Jones had led several homeless drug addicts to jump Sarah as she approached her car, and that the group stole the 23-year-old's bag and stabbed her in the back. On July 23rd, just 12 days after Sarah's disappearance, police pulled Jones in for questioning. Several of her friends had stated that she had confessed to slaying the young woman along with two men and that she was worried they would go to the police. Jody Jones died 14 months later from a heroin overdose, aged 26 years old. If Jones was involved in any way, it seems likely that we will never know. In the years following Sarah's disappearance, her family left the Frankston area due to having items thrown in their front garden and their car graffitied. A memorial has since been established at the Cananook Railway Station, and Sarah's family frequently return to place wreaths. There is a reward of $1 million available for anyone who can provide information leading to a conviction in Sarah's case or to her remains. Anyone with information on the disappearance of Sarah McDermott is encouraged to contact Crime Stoppers at 1 800 333 000. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this 
This is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Jaden Lesky. Jaden Raymond Lesky was born on April 30th, 1996, to Belinda Williams and Brett Lesky in Newborough, Victoria. Jaden, who was just one year old, was last seen alive by his mother's boyfriend, a man named Greg Domasevich, who was a self-taught mechanic. The couple had reached a place in their relationship where Belinda felt comfortable leaving the two alone together, and Greg frequently asked to babysit little Jaden. On June 15th, 1997, Greg left Jaden sleeping in his home while he went to pick up Belinda from a party that she was attending with her sister. During that time that he was gone, chaos unfolded on Greg's doorstep. During the course of Greg's relationship with Belinda, he'd actually been seeing his ex-girlfriend, a woman named Yvonne. On the night in question, upon seeing him leave, Yvonne's ex-fiance and brother went over to Greg's front windows and smashed through the glass with weapons. They attempted to throw a severed pig's head through the window, but it repeatedly bounced off the frame and so they left it in the front garden. Afterwards, the pair left. They were quickly ruled out of the subsequent investigation into Jaden's disappearance as they were not witnessed leaving with the one-year-old and also drew attention to themselves by throwing stones at teenagers and starting fights. The local police force argued that these behaviors were hardly those of kidnappers. When Greg collected Belinda, she immediately asked him where her son was. Greg casually replied that he'd already told her that Jaden was in the hospital. Belinda thought back to a phone call she'd had with her boyfriend during the party. Earlier in the night, Greg told her that Jaden had burned himself on a heater and that they were at the hospital. The young mother panicked and told her sister Katie, who waved her off, claiming it was probably one of Greg's sick jokes. Katie called Greg back and he admitted then that it was a joke. The siblings thought nothing more of it. In the car, on their way home from the party, Belinda told her boyfriend that she wanted to go and see Jaden. However, Greg had already presented her with another drink when she'd gotten into the vehicle and told her that she was too drunk and she would look like a bad mother. So he dropped her off at her home at around 3.20 a.m., at which point the couple witnessed the vandalism that had taken place at Greg's house. Greg left almost immediately after dropping his girlfriend off, claiming that he had to go and find out who destroyed his front windows. But it was later found that Greg had called Yvonne at 3.09 a.m. and screamed at her. During Greg's trip back to the house, he was pulled over by police for a license check and a breathalyzer test. He did not mention the pig's head or that Jaden was missing. A few hours later at 5 a.m., he woke Belinda, who'd fallen asleep in front of her heater, and told her that he had lied and that Jaden had been kidnapped and they would have to call the police. 
During police interviews, Greg repeatedly pointed the finger at his ex, Yvonne, and claimed that he hadn't reported Jaden as missing sooner because he did not trust law enforcement and said Yvonne was sleeping with a senior officer. The search for Jaden is believed to have been the largest since the disappearance of Prime Minister Harold Holt in 1967. The one-year-old's body was eventually found on January 1st, 1998 at Blue Rock Dam, 18 kilometers north of the town of Moe, where he lived. His body was battered and had been weighted down with a crowbar and shrouded in a sleeping bag. He had a fractured skull and two broken bones in his arms, which had been inexpertly bandaged. The bag Belinda had packed for him, which contained toys and snacks, was also recovered. Due to the state of decomposition, Jaden's cause of death could not be established, although he is thought to have passed away from a head injury. His autopsy revealed that he had benzexol in his system, something which is used to treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, among other illnesses. While it's believed that the one-year-old was drugged with this before his demise, it cannot be determined when exactly this occurred. Symptoms of the drug range from dizziness and nausea to hallucinations. The forensic evidence found on Jaden's clothing was contaminated with that of an unrelated case, adding another layer of questions to a case that already struggled to provide answers. Despite the fact that Jaden's body had finally been found, the exact series of events has continued to elude investigators even today. In 1998, Greg was charged with the murder of the little boy, but he was acquitted due to lack of evidence in December that year. A 2006 inquest, which Greg's lawyer insists was driven entirely by the media outcry, found that he'd contributed to Jaden's demise and that he likely disposed of the body. Greg is noted to have spent several hours of the night in question unaccounted for. Belinda recalls that she repeatedly tried to call him at one point, but couldn't get through. He has also provided conflicting details, struggling to explain the night's events to investigators. Friends and family told law enforcement that Greg often locks Jaden out with the dogs, ignoring his cries, and Belinda confirmed that her son sometimes came home with bumps and bruises, but that she thought he had just fallen over and had not assumed anything more malicious. At the time of Greg's arrest, he still had wet clothing on. His wallet was also wet, as was some of the banknotes that it contained. This has led many to suspect that it was perhaps only hours beforehand that he'd been disposing of Jaden's body. One inmate of Greg's claimed that he had confessed, telling him a jacked up car fell onto Jaden, resulting in accidental injuries, but this inmate's confession was deemed to be inadmissible in court. It's also been reported that he confessed to the accidental death to acquaintances of his, but this information has still not led to another arrest. There are virtually no theories about Jaden's demise circling around online communities outside of Greg's involvement. However, whether he did it accidentally or on purpose depends on who is asked the question. Due to double jeopardy laws that exist in Victoria, the case has been unable to move forward. Belinda has since joined a coalition asking for law reforms and repeatedly calls for change and for a $1 million award to be made available. Belinda has since remarried and has gone on to have four children with her new husband. Greg has reportedly also become a father. He continues to maintain his innocence, but allegedly blames himself for leaving Jaden home alone. 
Although it seems almost certain Greg was responsible, the case remains open and officially unsolved. Once again, anyone with any information pertaining to Jaden's case is encouraged to contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can also check out the Cold Case Detective Podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.